Hey, this is Brent Jensen, and you're listening to No Sleep Till Sudbury, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. And joining me from London, England today via Skype is Malcolm Galloway, a writer, director, producer, and musician. And if I'm not mistaken, Malcolm, you're also a neuroscientist. Is that right? Well, I'm a neuropathologist, so I'm a, a doctor who looks down microscopes at bits of brain and muscle and nerve and mostly these days i I teach and also deal with uh, inflammatory brain and muscle diseases okay i do that a couple of days a week Ah, i see okay so now primarily you're a rock musician in a band called hats off gentlemen it's adequate it's a curious name where did that name come from well i suppose partly it's the fairly english self-deprecating uh thing but i i had for years the image in my mind of these Victorian gentlemen throwing their hats up in the air not because of something being amazing but because of something being average and it kind of came from that uh, it's not a very practical band name for several reasons it's too long <laughs> it's not very good for posters uh, if you make it small enough so that it fits on a poster then it's too small to read on the other hand it has the advantage that if you google it looking for reviews and things you're not likely to come up with much else <laughs> Now, before you did that, before you got into rock, you were personally involved in classical music. Yeah. As a critic, I think. Yeah, so I used to write mostly about contemporary chamber music and the minimalists. And I was also involved with the management side for my wife, Catherine Thomas's uh, flute and wind quintet classical uh, careers. I was involved in putting on events and uh, making some, I thought, quite interesting CDs of contemporary chamber wind music um i mean my original instrument i started on the tuba that was the classical instrument i learned and then the other stuff that i do the guitar keyboards and producing and singing that's uh that's kind of self-taught stuff the the one that i learned to play was the tuba the big brass instrument yeah i don't get to play that much anymore not for many years Wow. So in our um, communications before uh, the call today, you had said something that I really kind of keyed into that I thought was cool. You, you talked about the minimalists and, and you said that before mm. the, the minimalists broke through, there was a sense in contemporary classical music that anything that sounded melodic or tonal couldn't be serious. From about 1915 onwards, perhaps the music that was melodically focused was seen as kind of cheap and cheating and cheesy. Hmm. Uh, the minimalists helped bring back uh, strong pulse-driven music and uh, music with tonal harmonies. I know the minimalists weren't particularly melodic necessarily, mm-hmm. but the idea of consonants rather than dissonant sounds being the only ones that you were allowed to make and still be taken seriously. I used to be quite um, maybe snobby about when I was a teenager about very consonant music but Mm -hmm. uh, having looked at some of the neuroscience of it some of the teaching that I do consonance takes advantage of certain neurological inbuilt responses in the same way that dissonance does Uh, doesn't mean that one is more virtuous than the other but the minimalists really helped increase the the kind of the palette of emotional reactions that it was seen as legitimate as getting from art music you know, I think we're going to have a really great chat because, uh, as I mentioned to you before, you combine the technical observations of the mechanics behind music with the emotionality that we all feel as music fans. Mm. And so, you know, in going through your songs, I hope that we are able to touch on both of those. Yeah. For me personally, when, when I see live music, 
uh, even if something is very technically perfect, if it doesn't have the emotional connection, then that's missing a major part of what makes live music special. Man, I'd rather see a, a passionate performance than a perfect performance. I completely agree. Yeah, and I've had this conversation before about Prague. Um, mm. You know, as, as long as the emotionality is there, it doesn't necessarily matter how long the song is. It's about the quality of the mm. listening experience. So uh, with that, let's get to your first selection here. It is by Marillion, and it's Warm Wet Circles. When I was growing up, I listened uh, a lot to uh, Marillion. I mean, I, I very much enjoy Marillion still, but the music you grow up with, it, it's difficult not to have a, a particularly strong emotional bond with. So that era of Marillion has a particular impact on me. Mm-hmm. Uh, warm Wet Circles, beautiful neo-prog song, uh, about somebody going from that kind of adolescent to adult uh, transition and starting to get their first emotional rejections and heartbreaks. And I remember playing versions of that song with with friends on pianos at, in parties and things. So Marillion have certainly been a very big influence on me. I've seen them more than any other band, I think, alive. I think they're great performers and writers. I think the guitar sound of Steve Rothery very directly connects with me. Um, mm. We've also got uh, some Pink Floyd later on in the uh, selection, both uh, David Gilmour and Steve Rothery. Um, I think they're quite similar in some ways that their their music is, it's not lots and lots of fast notes. It's not shredding type uh, guitar, but it's about really emotionally connecting with a small number of notes. Mm-hmm. And I you know, really admire uh, people who can get across an emotion with that kind of economy of means of expression. There's yes. something very vocal to me about that kind of style. Almost like um, a, an understated singer's approach to, to playing rather than a, you know, a shredding style. Yeah, it's, uh, it's simplicity and it's almost the old school blues methodology. Yes. Yeah. Um, well, it's interesting you mentioning about blues. I mean, I used to see my kind of classical and my rock side as being quite separate, but yeah. increasingly I've realised that there's more connection between them. And blues with the link to originally to African music, then going via America. And Steve Reich, a minimalist, um, explored African rhythms mm-hmm. and then brought those into Western classical music, separate strands of an African influence coming into rock and classical music. Right. There's very little in rock music that isn't to some extent blues influenced. Absolutely. That's a good uh, segue into your next selection here by Steve Reich. It's called Eight Lines. Um, so Steve Reich is one of the major uh, minimalists. I know that he and most of the other minimalists don't like the term it was michael nyman who coined the term minimalism Mm -hmm. um and most of the minimalists don't approve of it as a term but they moved away from the extreme complexity of a lot of the classical music that was being written at the time there was so much complexity in what was being written harmonically rhythmically that a lot of it sounded most random okay there was some random music being written as well as an experimental thing like relating to john cage but they moved away from music that expressly wanted only to be understood by people with a doctorate in musicology. Deep Reich, a lot of his music involves taking, say, a phrase of a certain length or the same phrase extended to be a different length and then repeating them so that you get these phasing patterns mm-hmm. and then patterns emerge from out of the music. So the complexity is generated from simple 
um, building blocks. Okay. You know, having a biology background, it kind of reminds me of how very simple building blocks in, say, human development lead to very complex patterns, even though the actual original building blocks are very, very simple. Mm-hmm. I think there's something similar there with uh, the minimalist. You can take very simple um, patterns and then play them slightly out of phase with each other so that emergent patterns come out of the texture. I know that for some people, it's really, really irritating, that kind of music. I do quite understand that, say, for my, my music, that's the, the classical side of the music that I write, which is very Steve Reich influenced i do understand that some people find it immensely irritating uh i think if you're not in the right mood an hour-long thing of something that very gradually varies um (laughs) most imperceptibly could be highly annoying and i don't tend to play that stuff live very often um but if you're in the right kind of mood and you just um immerse yourself into an evolving sounds soundscape around you that can be quite a relaxing thing if you're in the right state of mind at the time and if you're not it really will just wind you up right and malcolm there, there are no um lyrics in these songs is that correct um well some of the steve Reich pieces um have had uh, lyrics the one that i've chosen there eight lines that's instrumental but um there are some vocal ones you know, in some of his very early works he took a spoken phrase and had two tape recorders playing that but one playing it ever so slightly faster or slower so that it starts off sounding like you've got two playing identical parts but over time it gradually gets out of phase and these patterns emerge from that so he's he's more recently been writing a lot of operas with with words but uh, that have become less traditionally minimalist okay but the ones that i particularly like is some of his uh, instrumental works yeah it's interesting it's very interesting and what kind of a time frame are we looking at i'm not familiar with steve reich oh so, so steve reich this was eight lines the piece i chose was 1979 oh so so I think that was an interesting era musically in which you had rock musicians experimenting beyond some of the boundaries of what would normally be considered rock mm-hmm. and de- starting to develop prog. And then you've got some classical musicians um, moving out from traditional concert halls and people like Steve Reich and, and Philip Glass, they started to play in things like art galleries and clubs. Well, certainly I think a lot of the current prog musicians probably have some element of influence from the the minimalists yeah very interesting now your next song is by all about eve and it's called drowning so um i mean this is a not a particularly well-known uh, one of those it was a 1989 uh, b-side of theirs all about eve um i don't know if you've you've heard them more i have they're not popular here in north america i know that they're fairly uh, well known in the uk they were you know, moderately big in there in there in in the eighties. Uh, sorry, yeah, eighties, early nineties, uh, and it was one of their concerts that was the first proper big gig that mm. I went to in the audience, and that had a big impact on me. It was a really very good show, and she's a very magnetic, captivating vocalist with a very pure sounding voice, not forced and melodramatic, very very understated vocally in a, in a nice way mm-hmm. uh, and this particular song I chose it because it, it's a powerful song despite just being based on a, one single four chord pattern which is a very common pattern and a bit like how with the minimalists showing the classical world that you can have effective music that is relatively simple and this one reminds me that you don't have to do clever things with harmonies and structures and rhythms to make an effective song there's no point over-complicating it if it's not in the service of what the song's saying. 
Yeah. One of the reasons I, I selected that part, mostly because um, that particular band is one, you know, I listened to a lot of their music again growing up, you know, at a time when music really has an impact on you and sticks on you. And from that concert experience, which, you know, really inspired me. And then this particular song, because of that, you don't have to be doing fancy things to make a song effective. Right. Effective in the sense that it gives you goosebumps or makes your skin vibrate, right? It has that emotion. I get that emotional reaction to it. Yeah. And the fact that it's got a, a real economy of, you know, the, the, the harmonic side of it, just these four chords repeated in the same order all the way through. And that's fine. It doesn't need to do anything else when it's got that emotional connection. And and that's for me, that's kind of the holy grail that I'm constantly chasing is that if you, you know, you listen to a song like that, that's relatively simple, four chords, just, you know, repeating themselves. Mm. And yet the way that those chords are played against each other or, you know, the sequence that they're played in makes you feel something that you can't describe. Do you know what I mean? Well, I, th- I think for me with that song, the vocal is really emotionally resonant. Oh, okay. Uh, and I know that it's very difficult to take out the context of when you were first hearing these songs, what was in your head, what yes. were you going through. You know, you get all kinds of associations. So it's it's impossible really for me to know, is it is it an objective response? But I feel that, again, there's no kind of look at me grandstanding with fiddly bits of vocal up and down, you know, kind of, um, <laughs> uh, you know, TV talent show type um, <laughs> Ellis Marta. It's just very simple, but very direct and engaging. Yeah, yeah, I I'm a purist. I I uh, I know exactly what you're talking about. I'm not a big fan of overwrought music. So, yeah, less is more quite often. I agree. Uh next song, Malcolm, is uh, by Igor Stravinsky and it's The Rite of Spring. So, again, growing up, uh I used to go to a lot of classical concerts. Uh, and I live in London. We've always been close to where some of the big uh, orchestras are. Uh, Stravinsky's Rite of Spring very very powerful work and i really enjoy film music as well and i think there are very few film music composers who don't owe quite a large debt to stravinsky and if you listen to the right of spring and then listen to a film score there's a good chance you'll uh, hear little reminders in there Mm -hmm. um this was written in 1913 um at the time there was a there was a um a fashion for russian things in paris at the time and the ballet russe famous uh, ballet company commissioned him to write uh, ballets uh, for them. There, there was a famous story of there being a riot at the first night of the Rite of Spring, partly, I think, from the ballet itself, the, the choreography, which was uh, somewhat explicit, and partly from the music. I think perhaps the riot aspect was overhyped by their publicists, but certainly created quite an impression at the time. It's a, it's a piece about a pagan environment where a, a young woman is chosen to dance herself to death as a, a sacrifice to bring on spring. There's a, there are some parts of the music that are extremely aggressive and dissonant. And he was one of the, one of the people who really introduced some of the asymmetric rhythms and aggressive dissonance into uh, Western classical music. Mm-hmm. I find it a very powerful piece of music and it's certainly worth seeing live if you're interested in uh, music that really broke boundaries at its time yeah next is the quartet from chess the musical so um have you come across chess the musical before it's um i don't know i i have not i i'm not sure if any um, listeners have i I haven't okay so it was written by the male half of abba 
plus Tim Rice. And Tim Rice was the person who did the lyrics for the uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber early musicals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, It's not as famous as things like Evita or um, Jesus Christ Superstar, but I think it's a... I think it's an underappreciated musical. Again, I might be very biased. It's, I can't tell. I was taken to see it as a teenager by my parents, mm-hmm. and that was an emotionally very significant thing for me. It was the first West End show in a big music theatre show I'd seen. It was a really spectacular production. Mm-hmm. Again, very, very inspiring. Several different aspects. I mean, it tells the story of... Well, it's a series of chess matches, which maybe doesn't sound very exciting from... <laughs> In that sense, but it's it's based on when chess was used as an alternative to war during the Cold War as a way of trying to show whether America or Russia were superior and which system could produce the greatest minds. Yeah. And then with various dirty tricks going on and then also there's romantic entanglements which are also shown as being like a chess match. And in many different levels, each of the characters is moving things around like a chess game. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think a very, very interesting show. Also, musically, uh, it's very sophisticated. I've picked the quartet, which is uh, it's a vocal piece where four of the characters are singing largely at the same time. And it quite reminds me of some of the Mozart operas where you'd get these two or more of the lead characters singing something and they're intertwining around each other and very wittily playing as how the words intersect with each other. It's, it's extremely cleverly written. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, chess is my favourite musical. How does that, uh, just, just a question, How did, it, Mamma Mia, um, is that popular over in London? Probably. I mean, I've never really, um, I've never explored ABBA much. Um, the chess musical, I originally came to it via having enjoyed the Tim Rice and Andrew Lloyd Webber musicals rather than having come from an ABBA uh, mm-hmm. interest. Certainly, uh, yeah, there are ABBA songs that are uh, dance floor fillers at you know, weddings and things. Uh, right. Yeah, they're quite popular. But I think that Chester musical is more kind of serious sounding than ABBA. I mean, I think ABBA, I haven't really listened that much to, other than at weddings and things to um, right. their music but I understand that it's more sophisticated than it appears on first listening from what I've heard yeah interesting that the male contingent of ABBA were uh, involved in chess isn't it yeah very technically good uh, writers there it's very complex not so much in how it sounds it doesn't sound unapproachable but the way all these different pieces interlock through the musical uh, I think it's extremely well done it's a uh, yeah, the, the musical I would most recommend if somebody wanted to try a musical and aren't necessarily otherwise musicals fans. Mm-hmm. Okay, so your last selection here, Malcolm, is a very popular tune. It's uh, it's Comfortably Numb by Pink Floyd. Yeah, so um, from The Wall, 1979, mm-hmm. uh, quite a lot of the music that I listened to in my childhood, I, I came across from exploring my dad's LP collection mm-hmm. that he had. Know, substantial, you know, a couple of uh, shelves of LPs, and I just flick through and look at what was a oh, that looks like an interesting cover. Or not knowing much about them other than just seeing so- seeing something visually and think, well, that looks fun. I'll try that. Mm-hmm. Uh, exploring through that, that was how I first came across um, Marillion. On I don't know if you get the same kind of things, but we, it was a series in Britain of now. That's what I call music. One, two, three, whatever, mm. um, and. 
they were mostly just hit pop songs mm-hmm. and he had one of those and just one track on that was Marillion's Lavender which was it's not often that a prog rock song bothers the charts and yeah. that was one that uh, did and through hearing that then I went and checked out um, Marillion uh, similarly he had a, a, a copy of The Wall and um I listened to that and became a, a fan of Pink Floyd and then started exploring uh, the rest of their music. Comfortably numb. I, I think a lot of people assume it's about drugs, but I, I, my understanding from what I've read is it's more relating to Roger Waters' experience of when he had a um, kidney disease, uh, infection-related thing, mm. uh, as a child. And when he was on the uh, medication and the effect of the disease itself, he had a very odd effect on him uh, mentally for a a while during that illness and he had that sense of disembodiment uh, the comfortably numb of the title the guitar playing is something on this song that i find just gives me you know shivers up the spine yes so david gilmore i i love the way that with such simple um patterns he can make something so special Uh, and if you hear him playing it is it's really distinctively him mm-hmm. you know, he's got such a lot of personality comes through from that that guitar playing um his bends you know what he does with the bending the notes i, I really like what he does uh, it's difficult to uh, to describe why you know uh, one person bending a note a semitone has a different impact from another person doing you know these very very subtle differences in how somebody plays something I think that in his case, it's a sense of timing and feel. Mm. And, and, you know, he he doesn't play a lot of notes, you know, getting back to what we were saying, less is more. But um, mm. he plays the right notes the right way at the right time, I find. And that's mm. that's I think that that's kind of the secret to his uh, his mm. his genius, as it were. Mm. And sometimes just a, a few milliseconds before or after. Yeah. Totally change the feel of a, a note in a solo. Exactly. Uh, yeah. It may be sometimes surprising if people don't realize how these tiny differences can make such a difference to the emotional impact that's right that um, music can have you know i i've always thought it was funny because you hear in rock songs people just try to beat you over the head with the the amount of notes they can play as quickly as they can play mm-hmm. them and and that 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 doesn't amount to anything really you know you have a guy like him coming in and just you know playing those right notes at the right time and that's not something that you can teach you know that i think that's an intrinsic mm-hmm. innate feel thing you know yeah. that it's 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 special Mm. I mean, even something also like say on a piano, two different piano players can have such a different sound. Yeah. Even though you know they're still hitting the same hammers. It's it's feel and it's a sense of mm. timing as to where the notes mm. exactly belong in the phrase. Yeah. yeah there's a there's a magic in that. Well, great list, Malcolm. Thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. Um, Thank you very much for having me. I very much, greatly appreciate that. Oh, absolutely. I, I, I love the variety of your list. And I think that, you know, I always try to, with these episodes, uh, open people's minds up to, you know, new things. I like when people bring in new things. That's always very interesting. And I, I hope that listeners um, kind of see it the same way. So I appreciate the fact that you brought in quite a varied list here. Thank you very much for that. Thank you very much for having me. Much appreciated. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. All right, this has been No Sleep Till Subbury with Brent Jensen and my special guest, Mr. Malcolm Galloway. Till next time, folks, take good care. 
Brent Jensen is the best-selling author of No Sleep Till Sudbury, Leftover People, and All My Favorite People Are Broken. All titles available in stores and on Amazon Worldwide.